ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Today, we know that breastfeeding is great for babies and has benefits for mums too, which is why understanding the barriers to it is so important. Shortly, a look at an understudied phenomenon that many mums face called the breastfeeding aversion response. But first, it's a diagnosis no one wants to receive, dementia. And for tens of thousands of Australians, they got that diagnosis much earlier than anyone expected. Young onset dementia, when it starts before you turn 65, accounts for about 5% of dementias, but it has a big impact. Because it happens earlier in life, it often comes on when people are still caring for kids and financially supporting a household. And because it's rare, it often takes a while before it's picked up, leaving families confused and frustrated for sometimes years. So what's it like to get that news as a family? And how can we do better to support people with early onset dementia and their loved ones? Because there is room to improve. At least that's been the experience of partners of people with early onset dementia that I've been speaking to. Let's start with Karen, whose husband Karen was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in 2016 when he was just 57. And had probably been exhibiting, you know, signs that we had never put together because there's no family history. There's no reason for us to suspect that it was anything like that for quite a number of years prior to that. I think, you know, like the whole diagnostic process, like in our case, it was very quick. We seemed to get our referrals through quickly. We were referred to memory clinics quickly. But I think the thing that was probably difficult was that very deficit-based. The day he got his diagnosis, he was told, don't work, don't drive and go home and tick off your bucket list. And there was no consideration about what that meant for him in terms of anything or us even getting home from an appointment that we had to drive an hour and a half to get to. No one even asked, could I drive? It's like everybody seems to go to end stage, like there's no life in between. You know, when someone gets a diagnosis of cancer, there's suddenly this mobilisation. It's like, well, we're going to fight this. And it seems like the whole medical world flips into gear, whereas it's totally the opposite when you get a diagnosis. It's like, oh, well, it's not something that we can help you with. And sadly, we're not isolated in that we've spoken to so many people that have had that very, very same sort of response. And so that sort of post-diagnostic care and the pathways to support people and families to live lives is so crucial and so important, but it's not even offered or given to you. And so a lot of the supports that we had to find, we found through relationships with other people that were going through exactly the same things as us. So you had to build your own support network. Yeah. You talked about being in a rural setting. You said you found the diagnostic pathway quite easy and fast, but being in a rural setting had impacts as well? Yeah. So even like just for now, like for us now, our 
you know, ongoing supports that, as I said, we found through other friends are in Melbourne. So it means we have to travel or, you know, now with the onset of telehealth, it does make it a little bit easier. But I mean, telehealth is great, but it's not the be all and end all either. So you do need that contact. So we've got to do a lot of traveling. I think they get a bit blown away by I'm not really sure what to do and the things that we know aren't working. So, well, they don't turn up anymore. (laughs) So even being able to use and utilize the package that you get is really, really difficult. You have to advocate so strongly all of the time I would really like such a change in people's understanding and attitude towards dementia. Like, let's look at it as a chronic illness rather than a death sentence. People still need to live a life leading up to that. Then you end up questioning yourself. Am I doing this right? Like, why do all of these allied therapy people end up disappearing because, you know, they sort of get to the end of like, oh, well, you know, like we'll use this app or we'll do, well, Karen can't use a computer or do anything anymore. It's not going to work. You know, what can we do differently? Like we walked into a an appointment as husband and wife and we left being called carer and patient. I mean, all of that stuff is so, people don't realise the impact that language has and the minimisation of, oh, it doesn't matter, we all forget things, you know, and because a person with dementia can present and have obviously had really good coping skills for a long time, people minimise the difficulties that they deal with every day in just navigating the world and navigating so many things. And then the impact that then that has on families ongoingly, but even what tests are offered to people, getting some sort of consistency about that. And then the supports to help navigate, you know, this unknown service system that's then out there. I think that's really important and would take away so much stress for so many families and allow them then to enjoy whatever time that they do have left with their person. You know, a bit of forgetfulness, repeating of um, stories, stuff that people laugh off and everybody says, oh, I do that, but it just became a little bit more regular, I guess. I was aware of it and then I spoke to a couple of my kids and um, they sort of thought, yeah, we'd noticed something, maybe it's worth getting checked out. And how old was your wife at the time? She was diagnosed at about 64. So it could have been going for maybe four years. It's really hard to know. When you're living closely with a person, you don't notice subtle changes. You need people outside of that circle to help you. That see them, you know, once every three or four months, I guess. And then when you did sort of go, okay, let's have this looked at, What was the process of, did you feel like you were supported along the way? How long did it take for you to get the answers that you needed? We definitely felt supported, but it does take a while. I mean, it's an awkward conversation to have, in my case, with my wife, because you're telling them or suggesting to them that something could be severely wrong and something that's unpleasant. So she went, trying to remember if it was just to the local GP who then referred us to a place. So we live in regional Victoria, which makes it even harder. So we went to a um, place in Albury-Wodonga that spent the best part of a day doing some testing. 
at the end of that, they said, yep, we think there's some stuff going on here, and then they referred us to the Royal Melbourne, and my wife was um, an inpatient for two weeks where she did a whole lot of comprehensive testing, so she had to stay in for two weeks. That's a really long um, time. Is that standard? Honestly, don't know. It is a long time. So they do brain scans, they take blood samples, they uh, put her through interviews and um, cognitive tests, which you know include drawing sketches and answering questions. And I wasn't a part of it. You just go to interviews at the end where they tell you the results, really. It must have been an incredibly emotional time. It's prolonged and you're wondering what it will mean for your future and I guess your relationship and that sort of thing as well. It's scary. It really is scary because most of us have some sort of a exposure to somebody who has some sort of disease like dementia, maybe not directly, but maybe anecdotally. And nearly everybody, I think, has a, a feeling that this is something that just doesn't end well, that there's an unpleasant outcome. And at some point, it's probably harder for the carers and the loved ones and the friends than the actual person themselves. Of course, we don't really know that. You know, you don't know what's being communicated or thought by the person who's suffering. So now you've had a diagnosis, has it been a useful thing to have a diagnosis around? It's helpful. I mean, for a while, I was finding myself getting frustrated with my wife. You know, she might have been doing things or forgetting things that I didn't think she should be. And so at times that did test my patience. So once the diagnosis came, it made it a lot easier for me to accept that things are happening that she has no control over and that I better stop being frustrated with her to the best of my ability because that doesn't help her at all. It's already made a big change in our lives. I think it's my relationship is different with my wife. It's more carer than partner, I reckon. And that's happened pretty quickly. That's obviously sad. It's hard. You know, my wife's tighter a lot more than she normally or she used to be because the brain's working harder to do the stuff that she's trying to do. But there's plenty of people who see her in social settings, which is a normal happy place for her. And they say, well, we wouldn't know if you mm. hadn't told us. That's one of the weird things about the disease. You know, there's times where people appear and can behave normally. Of course, we don't know how long that will be for. And that's one of the insidious things about this. You just got to roll with it and see what happens down the track and try not to worry about what may or may not happen. Yeah. That's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> Pete, whose wife has early onset dementia there, and of course we heard from Karen as well. So what is the landscape in Australia? Well, Samantha Loy from the University of Melbourne has recently published a review into young onset dementia in the Medical Journal of Australia. We Most of us would consider dementia or typical dementia to occur in older people, so people who are in their 70s or 80s, and it more, most likely occurs with short-term memory impairment. But in young-onset dementia, we define young-onset dementia as the dementia which occurs in people who are less than 65 years old. It more often than not does not always present with short-term memory problems, and hence it's a lot more difficult to identify. And there's many other different types of dementia 
which can cause dementia in younger people, not just your typical Alzheimer's disease, which is more common in older people. So with young onset dementia, part of the difficulty is that the symptoms are not something you're looking for in people who are younger or you're not sort of maybe putting the connection between these symptoms and dementia because they're sort of not in the age span that you'd be looking for. What are some of the other diagnostic challenges with this? It is rarer. So it only young onset dementia really occurs between 5 to 10% of people with all dementias. And because it's not typical short-term memory loss, then you're not expecting it. The tricky thing is that people who are younger presenting with dementia, they might present with psychiatric or mental health conditions first. So that might be the sort of starting factor that they might be having dementia. So people might often present with anxiety or depression or even psychotic symptoms when they might not have had a previous history of it. And if you're in your sort of 40s and 50s and you're presenting with stress or anxiety, it's really easy to think, well, look, this is work stress. You're busy, you're working hard, you've got your family, you're trying to manage multiple tasks. And so you're not really thinking that it's dementia because it could be other things. Whilst it's important to treat those other symptoms or your mood or get some counselling, you know, these symptoms could actually be a harbinger of dementia occurring in a younger person. But dementia diagnosis, kind of no matter how you do it, is a pretty involved process. I'll let you talk through some of the things that are involved in it. <laughs> yes. But you're looking to see whether a blood test could help streamline the process for some people. Yeah, absolutely correct. To get a, an assessment for dementia is quite hard, particularly if you're living in a rural area or away from the metropolitan city. And diagnosis typically would um, encompass an assessment by a doctor like a psychiatrist or a geriatrician or neurologist. You would get a cognitive assessment, so you need a check of your memory and your thinking skills to see where they're at compared to other people. You might need to get a brain scan. You might need to get some blood tests. You might need to get an assessment of your functioning. So what can you do and what can you not do at home? And these things are okay if you live in the city and you can access these treatments. But if you live really far away, it can take a long time. It can cost a lot of money and it can be really quite a stressful process. And so the blood test which you're talking about could possibly be a game changer in streamlining the process and really helping to differentiate, is this person having stress and anxiety or is this person having stress and anxiety and is the stress and anxiety actually the start of a young onset dementia? And that's what we're hoping this blood test might help try and make that rough sort of dichotomy between those two broad categories. How far away is it? We're getting some really interesting results. We're getting some really good results that you actually can differentiate. So this is a blood test called neurofilament light chain, which you can find in what we call the CSF, so the fluid surrounding the brain via a lumbar puncture. And obviously doing a lumbar puncture or doing this procedure can be quite tricky, but doing a blood test is obviously a lot easier. So we're doing a lot of tests looking at this blood test at a variety of different conditions, not just dementia, but things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, to see whether it can clearly differentiate and how good can it be? Because this neurofilament light chain can be actually raised in other conditions. So it can be raised in dementia, but it can also be raised in people who have a traumatic brain injury, a delirium, and also alcoholic brain injury. So we need to be really careful to find out how specific it is and also to see what happens with this blood marker over time. And I think once we get some of these questions answered, then we can think about how we can actually bring it into regular use and access for everybody. So we're still a little bit away, but I think it's looking really promising. So that's a ways off, but what are some things that we could be doing now better to support people with young onset dementia? 
if we're able to try and give education and um, for GPs to try and think about red flags and also to people who work in mental health. So, for example, if someone is presenting with these symptoms for the very first time and they have a family history of, say, a dementia or a, a movement disorder in a relative at a young age, so a family history of something like dementia in a younger person as well. So some, not the older onset dementia, but say in their 50s and 60s, a parent or an uncle, that might be a red flag for the GP to think, you know what, I'll make sure that they get treated for the depression, but hey, maybe I need to think about talking to someone about another assessment. If, for example, the person has had very good treatment for their depression or anxiety, so they've had what we call therapy or antidepressants, and say after about six months or a year, things don't seem to be getting better or seem to be getting worse, that might be another prompt for the GP, for example, to say, hey, I need to get some help. Something's not quite right here. Maybe I need to call um, you know, someone from the hospital or someone to discuss. And then the other scenario also would be if, for example, the person in question has what we call neurological signs. For example, they're starting to get a tremor or they're not being able to walk or they look like they've had a stroke, things like that. That might also be a bit of a red flag to say, hey, I need to get some help and um, maybe I need to do a brain scan or something like that or do a cognitive assessment. That might be a prompt that maybe we should, you know, get referral to somebody else to seek assistance. Associate Professor Samantha Loy from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to The Health Report. I'm Tegan Taylor. Literally every mammal species does it. It feels like it should be the most natural thing in the world. But if you've ever breastfed a child, you know that just because it's natural doesn't mean it comes easily. Certain breastfeeding struggles are still under-researched, though, including a common phenomenon called the breastfeeding aversion response. That's when mum has strong feelings of aversion while feeding. It can happen anytime, but many women experience it if they fall pregnant while still feeding an older baby. That's been true for Queensland mum Stephanie. I'd had seen people describe breastfeeding aversion as like just this change that happens throughout breastfeeding as, you know, suddenly your emotions are changing, you're not happy with it anymore and you literally physically cannot stand breastfeeding any longer. I mean, it didn't start that severely. It ramped up, but that's certainly what I was experiencing at the peak <laughs> of that recently in my current pregnancies. It really started probably around week eight to 10 of my pregnancy. And I think that was when I started, you know, feeling really very, very sick with morning sickness. All those sensitivities come back in the body, a lot of nipple sensitivity and feeling a lot of discomfort. And then having my toddler who is approaching to still breastfeeding you know, before naps, after daycare, to bed, and sometimes throughout the night because we bed share. Continuing to want to do that when I felt so awful, I think that's really what triggered it. And then sort of persist every single day, those feelings just ramped up and up and up. And that really just felt like from a mild frustration, wanting him to hurry up and get off to sort of at the peak of it, feeling really like, nearly rage and mm. wanting to push him off me, get him off me and really needing to sort of actively restrain those feelings. You say that it sort of eased off for you a bit now. What has helped? Honestly, I'm not sure what's changed. I really don't know other than getting into the second trimester. And I know that breastfeeding aversion happens for different women at different points 
sometimes they're already feeding, you know, newborns and that sort of thing. But now I'm in my second trimester and I finally stopped feeling all those awful first trimester symptoms and the fatigue and the nausea that has really lifted in the past few weeks. And I didn't really notice it sort of ending. So it must have tapered off in the same way that it ramped up at the beginning. I kind of just realised, oh, that was gone now. And we're back to where we were before that. Just that feeling of like your beloved baby and sort of having this visceral response of wanting to push them away. Like, was that something that you felt guilt about? In the moment, yes, but not any longer. And I think that's just a me personality thing. (laughs) I have ADHD. So once I have my emotions, they're very real at the time. Afterwards, when I think back on them, I kind of just perceive them, you know, analytically rather than feeling that emotion again. So I know that it happened and I can sort of rashly say, "Mm, that wasn't great, but I don't actually feel those feelings again. So while I can really empathise with women that go through it in the moment, I actually don't feel anything about it now and, and I can go back into the next breastfeeding experience because I don't have that sort of bodily emotion coming back up when I think about it. Queensland mum Stephanie there. Understanding the breastfeeding aversion response, or BAR, is important for supporting mums through it. And one of the pioneers in the space is Melissa Morns, who joins me now. Hi, Melissa. Your research was really inspired at first by your own experience as a breastfeeding mum. I had two babies close together and I fell pregnant while I was still breastfeeding and the little guy that I was breastfeeding was only seven months old. So I kept breastfeeding and started having, when I actually started tandem breastfeeding both of them, I started having negative sensations of aversion just when breastfeeding the toddler and not when breastfeeding the newborn. And so I found online there were some people talking about it in a breastfeeding, a tandem breastfeeding support group. And so I started a small support group for people who were having feelings of aversion while they were breastfeeding in like 2013 with just a little handful of us. And since then, that group has grown. I already had a master's in public health and I tried to find some literature to explain what was happening. There was a little bit of social media discourse and I I knew that people were having this experience, but it wasn't documented in the scientific literature at all. Why has this never been studied before? I think a lot of the focus on breastfeeding in the past has been about the health benefits for women and babies. And rightly so, there are so many health benefits and it is the best way to feed babies. And not as much on the experience that women are having when they're breastfeeding. So most women, I found from our research that even those who do have these negative sensations or have a difficult time breastfeeding, if they're able to overcome those challenges, most women will report that they have an overall positive breastfeeding experience. But the research that I'm doing, and there are a few other people in this space now, is it's kind of new. It's quite novel to ask these questions and to find out what the experience is for women who are breastfeeding. So the work that you're, we heard before of a mum who was feeling that, you've felt it as well. You've done these studies where you've got people to basically describe to you the feelings of wanting to sort of throw their baby off them. It's this real visceral response. What are the impacts on mum and bub when women are experiencing aversion? Yeah, so our research found that if women aren't supported, 
they can suffer in isolation if women aren't able to find somebody that they can talk to about it. Some women are going to their GPs and GPs, we're finding from our research, that GPs are misunderstanding what's happening and thinking that maybe the women are just depressed or there might be something else going on that isn't aversion because a lot of health practitioners still haven't heard of this. They haven't heard of women having feelings of aversion while they're breastfeeding. What we've found from our research is that it can have an impact on maternal infant bonding. So women who are having feelings of aversion while they're breastfeeding are getting through each feed by distracting themselves with things like looking at their phone and that can have an impact on bonding. It can also affect maternal identity. So Women have feelings of guilt and shame, and we know from previous research that that can be harmful. It can also affect maternal relationships with partners, so it can have sort of kick-on effects for the whole family if the woman isn't supported and suffers in isolation and doesn't end up having that overall positive experience. What does that support look like in a perfect world? We found that women who experience aversion, those that are more at risk are people who are breastfeeding while pregnant, people who tend and breastfeed two infants at once, usually with the older nursling, and some women can have it around menstruation or ovulation and worse in the days leading up to their period. Just practical support for women around those times can be really helpful. So, for instance, someone who's tanned and breastfeeding and experiencing the aversion only with the toddler and not with the newborn, if somebody nearby, we actually published this in one of our papers, one of the dads would take the toddler out to feed the chickens while the mum was breastfeeding the newborn. And that was really helpful. That allowed the mum to not have to wean that toddler quickly, like tearing off a Band-Aid, and, and they were able to find an end to that breastfeeding journey that the mum and the toddler were both happy with and then have that overall positive breastfeeding experience, which is also good for the maternal identity and good for the relationship with the partner. So there are ways that women can navigate their way through this that does end up being positive if they are able to find that support. So advice to mums out there who are maybe listening going, yes, this is me, what do I do? Just to know that it's not your fault you haven't done anything wrong. You can continue to breastfeed if you want to. You don't have to wean. And there are things that you can do to continue to breastfeed or at least find an ending to that breastfeeding relationship that you're happy with and your toddler is okay with, like distraction in the moment. Also, we found from our research that a lot of people taking a magnesium supplement can be helpful. It can kind of take the edge off the feelings of aversion enough for people to wean slowly or to continue to continue breastfeeding. Practical support from others is really worthwhile trying to get, even if you feel that shame and that guilt, to talk to somebody about it, even if it's just a friend, a health professional. You can even, you know, have a chat with your local GP if you've got a good doctor. Maybe Google my research so you can <laughs> show your partner or your GP. Nice little plug there. That this is, well, just that it's a real thing. It's quite validating for a lot of women when they read that there are so many other people that are having this experience. In our last survey, we had over 5,000 responses and we found it was like 22%. So one in five women said at some point they'd had that negative experience. But... 86% said that their overall breastfeeding experience was positive. And those without bar was slightly higher. That was 88.3%. And those with bar, still 82% of those who experienced 
breastfeeding aversion response still said that their overall breastfeeding experience was positive. So these are obviously women that were able to continue to breastfeed and find their way through it. And that's our hope, to support women to find their way through these difficult experiences so that they can achieve their own personal breastfeeding goals. Because previous research has shown that when women are able to achieve their own personal breastfeeding goals, they have better mental health outcomes. It's good for the baby. It's good for the mum. It's good for the family. It's good for the environment. You know, breastfeeding is just all around good for everybody. Melissa Morns is a PhD candidate in the Australian Centre for Public and Population Health Research at University of Technology, Sydney. And this has been The Health Report. Meet you back here at the same time next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.